I'd ask you this morning, please, to turn to the book of Exodus, the fourth chapter. Next week, we're going to start studying the book of Nehemiah. Um, been a lot of, I've asked a number of the elders and, and I've asked the pastors to tell me what they think, and my wife, of course, um, what they think we ought to go to next. And Rob has been a firm advocate for Nehemiah because of the job we have ahead of us this year of actually finally building. And so um, next week we will begin that series in the book of Nehemiah this week because we are setting apart officers, deacons this week, and then next Sunday night, Lawrence Howe is an elder, to the calling of leadership, um, we're going to take one week and look at uh, that man Moses, the great, greatest of all leaders. Let's read together as our sermon text, Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. This is picking up from the scripture lesson that we had earlier. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send a message by whomever you will, as if he didn't know whomever he willed to send. That's my addition. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. 
one of the greatest failures of Christians in this country in the last hundred years has been a failure to understand the nature of the church. Um, I was with my mother this last week. She was down visiting us in preparation for coming down to have surgery in Mooresville on her knee. And we went by a church in town, and it had up on its uh, sign a scripture verse. This is probably, if the truth be known, it's my favorite church in town. Because ever since I first came to Bloomington almost 12 years ago, uh, instead of these ditz-brain statements that so many churches have up on their sign, this church just has one verse every week. And they're not like, you know, all the soft verses, but they're, they're often quite uh, telling verses, you know, of the repentance kind. And we went by this church and it talked about, it, it had a verse, I don't remember the actual verse, uh, to, to recite it, which version it was, but it, it was a verse talking about, you know, believe and, and be baptized for the washing away of your sins. And, and my mother immediately said, well, that's not good. And so we ended up talking about it the whole way to the airport. And uh, I thought that was so interesting that a, a, a verse from Scripture, all right, is up on a sign, and my mother, that's not good. And as we talked about it, it became very clear that the reason she thought it wasn't good was that the verse tended a little bit too much to make us think that maybe baptism actually does something, you know. And, and all of us have repented of Catholicism. And so, you know, we're, we're very uncomfortable that God uses specific things, you know, that God does use baptism, that, that God has appointed not just the end but the means. And uh, the church is a means, and it got into a long discussion about uh, the nature of the church because uh, my parents were uh, at, at Wheaton College at a time when the nature of the church was under a, a great deal of battle. And a president of Wheaton College was actually removed because he believed in the church enough to fight for its reform. And that was scandalous to the trustees, so they ejected him. Well, what is the church? And the minute you get into the church, you can't avoid the issue of leadership because really uh, the reason so many of us aren't comfortable with the church is because leadership is intrinsic to the church. It's right at the center of it. And we need to recognize that God uh, speaks constantly of the church, that, that all this language of individual spirituality and individuals uh, being at the center of it is, is, is not the language of Scripture. Yes, uh, we do individually come to God, but we come to God and He immediately places us within the bride of Christ, which is the church of Jesus Christ, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth, which is the household of faith. And you can go on and on and speak of all the Scripture references that point to the body of Christ. And the minute you have a group, what else do you have? Well, you have to have leadership. Uh, I have often commented to you how ironic I find it that the very people who hate leadership always end up fighting amongst themselves as to who will be leader. And so every couple of years you have a big battle among the National Organization of Women as to who will be the head. They don't even believe in headship. And if you go to Ms. Magazine, you open up the, the masthead page, you see an absolutely vertical 
list of the pecking order of leadership in Ms. Magazine. <laughs> Thought we didn't need leadership. Well, apparently we do need leadership, and Scripture is very clear about this. At every point in the history of God's people that's given it to us in Scripture, there have been individuals that have been called by God to lead. And we remember that Gideon was called while he was doing what? While he was threshing grain. We remember that Elisha was called while he was plowing his field. That Matthew was called while he was collecting his taxes, or Rome's taxes. That David and Moses were both called when they were out caring for their flocks, for their father's flocks, their uncles. And so God is in the habit in Scripture of interrupting the lives of these men and commanding them to liberate, to comfort, to feed, and to guard his own flock. That flock, which today we refer to as the household of God, the church of the living God. And our Lord himself, when he came here to earth, he did the work that he himself had seen his father doing. And thus it was that our Lord called men to leadership. In fact, he spent the night in prayer before he began to appoint them to leadership, the disciples. Jesus commanded, for instance, Andrew and Peter to leave their boat and their nets and instead to come follow him and learn to be fishers of men. And if there remained any question about the nature of Peter's calling, after our Lord's death and resurrection, after Peter had failed miserably, which we all as leaders do constantly, uh, he reiterated that call. He went back through it again because three times, having found Peter back in the boat fishing, returning to what he knew best, he called Peter out and he said to him three times what? He said, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Very clear what the call was to Peter. Very, very clear. So we easily recognize the love of our Father for us and the provision he has made for our redemption through the body and blood of his own Son. I don't think that there would be anybody in a Christian church who would fail to have gratitude in their hearts for God's provision of his only begotten Son and his blood, his body given for us. But I wonder how many of us recognize that that same God has not just given us his own son, but he's given us our food, our clothing, our shelter, that he has placed uh, the poor and the lonely within households, that he has brought the family of God together, and that he has given us leadership. Is this one of the things that we give thanks to God for? When we read James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows do we think of the gift of leadership do we think of this as one of god's good and perfect gifts or do we think of it as so many do today as a necessary evil as something that at certain times has to have a certain prominence in god's plan do to certain crises as something that over the long haul 
is really rather old and in the way. Well, the minute I say that, your ears are picking up on what is a theme among so many who claim the name of Christ today. Because among those confessing Christ's name today, there's a battle between those who see leadership as a product of the fall, as a necessary evil in a less than perfect world, but an evil that will be absent in heaven and also absent within the marriages, families, and churches of more enlightened and more evolved Christians today. I hope you're smiling. Anytime you hear the word evolved, you should smell a rat. (laughs) They're selling us a bill of goods. Those who believe that way have turned aside from the God of Scripture. There's another category of Christians today, and that is those who believe that leadership among men is simply a reflection of the nature of the Godhead, in which the Son has submitted and will submit to the Father eternally. And that those who reflect God's fatherly authority here on earth in their leadership of men are not superior to those men in value, those men that they lead, but rather are fulfilling the responsibilities delegated to them by God. And more, that the fulfillment of those responsibilities of leadership are one of the chief blessings that God gives to us as his flock of sheep. You all know that Rita and I meet most weeks for a short time, and each time Rita comes in, uh, Rita brings to me a series of pages of written scripture. And over the years, I've come to notice that there are a few themes. And there are a few places in Scripture that Rita returns to again and again. One of those places is something that I had never noticed in Scripture until I began to read it about every three to five months over the course of about 11 years now. And this is one of those texts. In Isaiah 30, we read, beginning with verse 18, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more, for he will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. If you know Rita, you know that one of the things that characterizes her life is a deep belief that leadership is a good thing and a love and an affection and an advocacy constantly before the throne of God for those who are put in authority over her. Well, we look at our Lord and we see that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, nor does he leave his flock unattended. But as he himself taught, So he provides his flock other teachers who will follow in his footsteps, feeding his flock with tenderness and with courage and with love. I want to read 
a couple sections from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which our officers subscribe to as a condition of serving in office. First of all, from the chapter on the church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, in other words, it's not confined to one nation as before under the law, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, through which men are ordinarily saved and union with which is essential to their best growth and service. Unto this Catholic and visible church, Christ has given the ministry. Now, you could just read right over that. You know, blitz on through it, you know. Not think about it. But listen to it again. Very short statement. Into this, unto this Catholic invisible church, Christ has given the ministry. Oracles and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Then skipping down to the chapter on church censures, chapter 30, it says, The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. And again, we have a tendency just to read on over that and not think much about it. But think about this. Jesus Christ is the one who gave us leaders. Jesus gave us the church. Jesus has called us to recognize that we are sheep, that we do easily go astray, that we need the body of Christ, that that is the place that he ordinarily works for our salvation that when we come to the sacraments, that we are coming to Christ. Now this morning we are going to set apart the leaders that God has called to serve him as deacons here in our church family. We don't look at this as a popularity contest, but rather we see that through our congregational meeting and through the process of selection and training and examination that the elders carried out with these men, that God himself working through his Holy Spirit, has set these men apart and will this morning to that task. This is not a light thing that we do. And yet at the very same time as we say that, I recognize that there are some among us who doubt the call of God, others who know that God did indeed call, but they're not quite sure how far along with God they're willing to go in fulfilling that call. In other words, those who are very hesitant in leadership. And of course, we all understand that if leadership is of a fabric with human life, that as I speak specifically about the church, that it applies also very much to the home. Uh, As I watch myself in my home and think about little things that are quite big things like having family devotions, like uh, being present, I realize that so much of leadership is, is hard work and, and I know that it's very seductive to us to think that we really don't have the energy, that we owe ourselves a rest. And so when you think about uh, your calling as a father and as a husband, being a leader in a marriage, 
You know, I want to start out by saying whatever I say about the church applies to you. That God has appointed you a leader in your marriage and in your home. And that you have a responsibility that's very, very serious. You've been delegated that responsibility. And you must take it up. But we feel weak. We feel that we don't have the gifts that we need to carry out these duties. And even if we have some of the gifts, at the moment when it is incumbent among us to use those gifts, uh, we really are very tired. Now, let's then acknowledge right at the beginning that any leadership is tough and scary. And it is lonely. You think of a mother at home alone with her child as the child begins to express his will. And it's very hard for that mother to believe that the time comes when that child needs a spanking and that it shouldn't be a symbolic act but should actually hurt. Right? Leadership is scary. It's tough. It's lonely. Because it calls for a man to stand firm when all the world thinks he is an idiot. When all the world thinks that almost any direction is better than the direction that he has just announced to his followers. And so, if we think about it, there's a reason, in fact, a very good reason that Moses is so desirous of avoiding the call of God, of declining that call. After all, Moses remembered quite well that time years ago when he had taken his first steps as a leader of the Israelites. And what had he gotten for his pains? Well, what had happened was uh, the Israelites had not appreciated him. And it's fair to say neither had the Egyptians. The Egyptians were going to kill him. And the Israelites were going to point him out to the Egyptians as they came to kill him. And so there's a reason Moses is now out in the wilderness with sheep. Sheep are dumb. And by that I mean not stupid, but without the ability to speak. They can't name him. And even if they can, there's nobody there to listen. It's out in the field. It's a good place for a man that's trying to run from leadership. Or you have Saul hiding in the luggage. So there's a reason why Moses kept declining the call. He remembered what had happened. He knew leadership is dangerous at any time but particularly when it's going to involve returning to the very place where neither the oppressor nor the oppressed are waiting for you with open arms. And then, even when there is not such open hostility, the tasks of leadership are daunting and intimidate wise men who know God in their own will and their own heart. Now, some of you have been selected for positions of leadership, and it's fair to say that you are overwhelmed by what you have read to be the scope of your office. And again, I want to remind you, this applies in, in all areas of leadership. Leadership is daunting. Uh, one of my more shameful moments in my life was a time, I want to say it was within the first year of marriage, when Mary Lee and I came back to my parents' home from Madison. And in that first year, I not only took on a wife, but I also took on a child, Heather. And I remember sitting in the living room <laughs> as a young man, and uh, I wasn't a man because I sat there and I cried, and I was expressing to my parents the complete 
uh, overwhelming heaviness of leadership and being responsible for a wife and a child. And uh, that is the nature of being a husband and a father. It is unbelievably hard and scary. And I'm now... I'm now, what, 28 years into it or so, 29. And uh, it doesn't seem to be getting any easier. I mean, seriously. If you look at me and you think it's easy for him, there is truth to that. I have a most excellent wife. Um, But look at my home. You know, I have Michael. How would you leave Michael? (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> you know, Michael was quite bright, quite articulate, quite firm in her convictions. And then there's Hannah. And then there's Taylor. And then there's Annie Lane. And there's Mary Lee, and there's the various hangers-on that are there at any particular time. And now in the next couple of weeks, my mother is going to be in my home. And Jay Lee called me from Florida last week and said, be very good to your wife because it's very difficult to have your mother-in-law in in town living with you. And my wife was with me at the time and she wanted to know what Jay had to say. Excuse me, my mother was with me. (laughs) And so I told my mother what Jay had said. So if you think that as you get older, it gets easier, you just look at Jay and Nina and you tell me how easy it is for them. Do you think your responsibilities decrease as you get older? No, they don't. You become a father to more. You become a mother in Israel. Your duties grow and grow. And your body begins to break down. And you don't remember the way you used to. Winter becomes intimidating instead of fun. And so I just want to warn you that whatever the nature of your leadership it is, it is a difficult thing. And the day is growing evil. I remember thinking 30 years ago that the time would come in my lifetime that anybody who articulated the biblical doctrine of male leadership would be an anomaly and would be scorned by the Christian world. I remember thinking that 30 years ago, knowing it was coming. Well, now it's hit, and it's lonely, and it's nasty. Because when we get attacked by people in this community, it's a lead pipe cinch that almost always, that attack comes precisely at the point where we stand for the leadership of men in the church, in the home, in society, in marriage. Leadership isn't getting easier today. Leadership carries with it a heavy weight of responsibility, one that we would like to avoid because we're comfortable in our living rooms before the call comes. Because these responsibilities are unlike any other responsibilities we've carried in a business organization. Here in the church, we deal with eternal questions, and what's at stake is the glory of God and the well-being of those for whom Christ has died. 
And so the question is, who's qualified? Who's adequate for the job? Who has no fear? Only a fool would go into this responsibility without the clear and certain call of God. And yet, even the knowledge that God has called us doesn't seem to do the job entirely. And Moses is a perfect example of this. There was absolutely no question to Moses that God had called him to lead his flock. And verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And if we were uncharitable to Moses, we'd look at him and we'd say, Who are you? You are the one that God just called to go to Pharaoh and Egypt. Who am I to do this? Well, God just told you, you are the one. Who am I? Well, Moses, you know, you're very meek, very, very humble, reticent to take on things that aren't your duty. Who am I? God just told you, Moses, you are the one that he is commanding to do this. A pastor says, who am I that I should go to a church and preach the word of God, telling the congregation that God commands them to forsake this world? Then in verse 12, Moses says, God says to Moses, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses, what? Said to God, I will trust in your promises and I will go. Now Moses said, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I'll say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, it's a good question because it had been 430 years since God had appeared to Jacob and he had not appeared by record to any other Israelite in that time. So all of a sudden Moses is supposed to show up and say, the God of Jacob has appeared to me and commanded me to come to you and to tell you that you are going to be released from your oppression. And they're going to say, uh, yeah, what God is this? Sure, God appeared to you. Which God? When? And, and by the way, who else saw him? An elder says, what if I go to a church member and tell him that I have come as God's representative to him to encourage him to come back to church? And he responds, my God speaks to me in nature out under the night sky through the carpet of wildflowers in the spring woods on the Sunday morning television program. Then what do I say? Verse 14, God said to Moses something that every time it's said, the earth should shake under our feet. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Another elder says to God, what if they say to me, who do you think you are telling me what God says? Where exactly do you get off? I don't need anybody else to tell me what God says. I can hear God plenty fine myself. Thank you. The deacons say, I can't do it. The elders say all this stuff about God and deliverance and obedience is fine for the Bible in the wilderness 4,000 years ago, but it isn't going to fly today. You've got to be realistic and live in the real world. Pharaoh won't budge. Send someone else. One of my favorite things about the Bible, and I often comment on it, is how painfully honest the Bible is. 
If we think that the Bible is simply the record of one people's group's search for transcendence, which of course is what the entire uh, academic elite as a group thinks. Uh, Let me tell you, there is not one person who's sophisticated and looks at the Bible as one people's group's search for transcendence who would himself, having written up his own life or the life of his forefathers, have put in the failures that Moses puts in the Pentateuch himself about his own actions, his own unwillingness, his own unbelief as he's faced with the call of God. And you see this all through the scriptures. (laughs) You know, you see David. You know, if there were one psalm I'd keep out of the book of Psalms, it's probably Psalm 51, you know, and I certainly would not allow my court stenographers to to make a more detailed record of of Bathsheba. Um, You look at the Gospels and you see, you know, in the upper room, they were striving amongst themselves to see who would be the greatest, you know, and even if you were to put that into the record, the historical record of the time of Christ with his disciples, would you put it in the upper room right before the passion of our Lord? You'd probably relegate it to some other marginal moment in the life and ministry of Christ, but certainly not there in the upper room as Christ's heart is bursting with pain and sorrow. But the Bible is honest, and we see the failure of great servants like David and Noah and Moses. And so as we see their failures, we take hope that God can use us. We take hope that God is a God who does not despise the weak and the unbelieving and the faithless. We see him saying to Peter, feed my lambs, right after the denial. We remember that he himself reveals about his character that he is slow to anger and he is plenteous in mercy. And so he lowers himself to Moses And he gives many promises to Moses. When Moses gives the excuse that he's not eloquent and that he stutters, God reminds Moses that he's the one that makes the tongue, that he makes the eye. In fact, not only is he the one that gives the gift of seeing and hearing and speech, but that even when someone lacks those gifts, it is God's agency that's behind it. So in other words, even Moses stuttering, stammering, his lack of articulation, is if there's such a word as ineloquence. That is a gift from God. Very interesting that Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament, people look down at them. They're not orators, you know. They're not smooth. They don't have a story that draws a laugh every five minutes. You know, they're not facile. But I'll tell you something. If you sat under the speech of Moses or Paul, there was no question whether or not God had a message for you. It's interesting as we listen to Moses give his excuses, it is easy for us to think that he's simply being modest. When he says, who am I? They won't believe that you sent me. They won't believe you really talked to me. I'm not eloquent. I stutter. And we get to the very end of Moses' excuses And even though we're being drawn along in such a way that we can think it's humility, when we get to the end, we see that at the heart of it is unbelief. At the heart of it, really, if we dare to speak this way about such a leader, at the heart of it is 
cowardice, fear, faithlessness. As a matter of fact, it would be fair to label it rebellion. It's unbelievable about Moses. Finally, Moses has run out of good excuses. And in verse 12, what I will paraphrase, he says, O Lord, send someone else. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to leadership, when it comes to duties that God gives us that we don't want to bear, we're never hesitant in putting someone else's name forward for those duties. (laughs) You get it? You know? Oh, David Canfield can do that, you know. Well, Carol, you know, she's faithful down picketing at the abortuary, you know. Carol will do that. Lord, send someone else, you know. Oh, you know, Pastor Bailey will go visit them and, 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 and hit on the husband. You know, he'll tell him to get his, his house in order. Um, yeah, they live right next door to me, and yeah, I'm having coffee with him now. And, and I know what I should say to him, but Pastor Bailey can, can bang up on him. Lord, send someone else. And it's right here that God's patience ends. When Heather was young, you, there were many delightful things about her, but one of the things I remember most about Heather is that when she had done something that wasn't the best, maybe not direct disobedience, but just sloppiness or something like that, like if she was taking a bath and there was water all over the bathroom floor, and you'd walk into the bathroom and you'd say, Heather, how did all this water get on the floor? She'd say, I don't know. And you'd say to her, well, who did it? And she'd go, someone else. (laughs) Someone else. And that's about the level of Moses' final plea. Someone else. God has reminded Moses of his power. Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Then God repeated his promise that he would be with Moses. And not generally only, I'll be with you, but specifically he said he would be Moses' mouth. In fact, in verse 12 it says, Now then go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Not just generally, cosmically, but specifically the very point of weakness, I will be with your mouth. And then third... God sent Moses' elder brother, Aaron, along with him to help with the job. And it's very sweet to see that despite Moses' cowardice and his resistance and his rebellion and his faithlessness, that God keeps lowering himself and deals with Moses where he is. It's a very sweet thing that the final way that he conforms himself to working through this man is by giving him somebody to stand with him. Matthew Henry puts it, God might have laid Moses wholly aside for his backwardness to be employed, but he considered his frame and he ordered him an assistant. Sometimes at weddings... We will read this text from Ecclesiastes 4. 
Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. God is not just able to lead us through our physical and mental weaknesses, but he's also able to lead us through our spiritual weaknesses to provide for all of our unbelief, sinful though it is. And so God finally gave Moses an assistant. And what a sweet gift this gift of an assistant is. And so the question is twofold. On the one hand, we have a question, you know, who am I to lead the people of God? I can't do it. But on the other hand, there's another question, and that is the question of who am I to resist the call of God? And the response to that has to be, I must do it. And so I want to say this morning to all of you, leadership is not dead. Leadership is part of how God has made the universe. It's in the Godhead. In no way does it invalidate the equality of the Son and the Father, that the Son submits to the Father and does the work that he has seen the Father doing. Don't believe the lie of this world that when we get fully evolved, we won't need leaders. I still need the threat of a police officer to wear my seatbelt. And it's a lead pipe cinch that every single home that's represented here, every dorm room. In fact, I was once talking to a, a, a religion reporter from a newspaper, and she was a very evolved woman. And she was asking me whether I fear that people will call me a male chauvinist. I, I asked her this. I said, ma'am, in any relationship that you know, among your friends, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, if it's a long-term relationship, do you know any relationship where they are committed to one another where there is not a leader? And she thought about it, and she said, well, actually, no. And then I said to her, now, let me ask you a second question. Um, who would you rather have leading you as a nation, Bonnie Prince Charles or Bill Clinton? She said, well, what does that have to do with it? I said, just answer the question. She said, well, I don't know. I, I, I'd rather not have either of them. This was a number of years ago, four or five. I said, yeah, that's true, isn't it? But on some level, isn't it nice to know that Bonnie Prince Charles is simply a decree from heaven and birth, whereas Bill Clinton, we chose him. And that's an awful thought. I said, so you always have leaders... 
And if you're going to have a bad leader, isn't it nice to know that that leader is a function of God's decree? It's an accident of birth. Do you understand that? An accident of birth. Why is leadership that's a function of strength of personality and loudness of tongue superior to leadership that's an accident of birth? You know, Why is it better to have a spouse lead because they're louder than it is to have a spouse lead because they're a man? You see, my point is you can't escape leadership. Leadership is part of how God's made the world. And God selects leaders, sometimes by birth and sometimes by the call of God expressed through the vote of a congregation as we do this morning. And if God has put you in a position of leadership and you find yourself running as fast as you can to escape it, you're absolutely boringly normal. If you find yourself in a dorm room with a pagan who is doing evil and wicked things and you know that God has told you to speak to that person and you would rather die, you're boringly normal. But look at Moses. Everything he needs, tick them off, God provides him. Every time he tries to defer the task to someone else, God says, no, you're the man. And so this morning, whatever your leadership is, you're the man. And the question is, are you going to be faithful to your leadership? Or are you going to say, someone else, Carol. It just kills me to think of Carol being the one that's carrying these huge pictures of children ripped apart in this community. A woman doing this. How is it that we have become so pathetic as a people, that it's a woman that has to go out and do battle with the forces of darkness that are killing unborn children. I thought it was a man's job. Oh, Lord, send someone else. I have important things to do. Carol has nothing important to do. And so we'll let her do that unimportant thing. Now, you might not like the illustration, but the principle is inarguable. And that is... All of us have calls, specific calls from God that we would like to defer, to put off, to say that we stutter, to say that no one will believe us if we speak up in the name of God, to say that there's someone else that can do a much better job. And the question is not whether there will be leadership. The question is not whether God has given you a job to do. The question is, will you finally shut up? I'm sorry, if you think that's rude. Will you finally be quiet, please, (laughs) and do what God's told you to do?